So, tonight is a, what might be called a heart talk. Going to speak about some of the, three of the foundational supports for practice. Foundations of gratitude, generosity, and sila. A lot of folks have been reporting these last few days on opening to gratitude. So I thought it was important to spend a little bit more time on that. And in the Buddha's times, his teachings for people coming into the Dharma, into the practice, his first teaching was on generosity. Then he would offer the teachings on sila. Then he would offer the teachings on meditation. So I like to honor that order. And I think there's a logic to it that maybe you'll, you'll see and appreciate tonight. When we cultivate and practice with gratitude, generosity, sila, there's a happiness that comes forward, a joy that can come forward. There's a sense of harmony, kind of a harmony with our own hearts and kind of an inner harmony, inner harmony, a stillness, a coming into an alignment with things as they are. So we can be more fully present for our practice not the clouds of greed, aversion, and delusion. They support a sense of calm, a sense of contentedness, and a sense of enoughness, of having enough, of not needing to attach to getting more, having some special state of mind. So they're not just nice things. They're deeply supporting our practice. They're supporting a waking up by providing that sense of calm and stillness, the sense of enoughness that supports renunciation, that supports the renunciation, the letting go of the forces of greed, aversion, delusion, that cloud the heart and mind, that prevent clear seeing, that prevent the beautiful qualities of loving kindness, compassion, supportive joy, and equanimity from naturally arising So gratitude, first uh, quote from Maya Angelou. Let gratitude be the pillow upon which you kneel to say your nightly prayer. And let faith be the bridge you build to overcome evil and welcome good. So remembering faith that Kamala and James both spoke about Sunday and Monday this trusting confidence in the heart, placing the heart upon. And from Joseph Goldstein, one of my teachers, gratitude is acknowledgement of all that sustains us, a bow to our blessings, great and small. Gratitude is confidence in life itself. And you could say it supports the confidence in our practice itself. A lot of gratitude arising on this retreat. Gratitude for the Buddha's teachings. Gratitude for our having the time in our lives to be here, to be here on this retreat. Gratitude for the land, 
the animals on the land. Beth uh, saw, where's Beth? Beth saw a uh, bobcat right outside her room this afternoon. A lot of beautiful wildlife. And it seems like the hundreds of turkeys <laughs> we see too. Gratitude for it all, the sky, the sun, perfect weather we've been having this first week despite the cold. And gratitude for the center and all who support this center, support our retreat. I love to bring a gratitude reflection into my practice at mealtime, especially on retreat, but sometimes in daily life too. It's a gratitude reflection I drop in sometimes, not, not all the time, but just to reflect on the miracle of the food we're about to eat. The miracle that few of us in our lives ever go hungry. And the complete interconnectedness that results in that food being on the plate in front of us. The people in the field who um, plant the crops, who take care of the crops, who harvest the crops. I have a good friend who grew up and high school working in uh, the farms in the Central Valley and he he was a packer. I never even knew there would be a position of packer who packed grapes, strawberries. Makes sense, have to do that very carefully. So the packers too, truck drivers, people in the warehouse, grocery stores, the cooks at the Spirit Rock who prepared the food, the yogis who carried out the food. This is kind of seamless web of human connection it results in the miracle of our having the great food we have here at Spirit Rock. That reflection supports breaking through the sense of separateness, the false sense of separateness, which will deeply support our practice. Three of my favorite quotes on gratitude uh, from Brother Steindel Ross, who's a real I'm a gratitude expert. He speaks and teaches a lot about gratitude. It is not happiness that makes us grateful. It is gratefulness that makes us happy. Every moment is a gift. So the more we open to gratitude, the more we open to joy, to happiness. And with that, our hearts open wider. Um when we're present with gratitude, the clouds of greed, aversion, delusion are present. And that allows loving kindness, compassion to arise as well. From His Holiness the Dalai Lama, daily reflection he offers, I am fortunate to be alive. I have a precious human life. Truly a precious human life, the Buddha, spoke often about the great good fortune of being born into a human body and the enormous good fortune of being born in a human body and being able to practice the Dharma in this lifetime. From a very wise being, Piglet, Winnie the Pooh, Piglet noted that even though they had a very small heart, it could hold a rather large amount of gratitude. So in my own practice, it took me a few years to realize this, but uh, gratitude was one of the 
one of the factors that brought me on the path, that started to bring me on the path. About 25 years ago, I started a, a process of healing, like many of you may have done, to kind of recall seemingly ancient memories of difficulties and youth, childhood. Started the healing process, and uh, I particularly felt gratitude for a time in my life when I needed a place to stay. I had about four weeks where, even though I had a job, was in good health, the conditions of my life were such that suddenly I didn't have a place to stay. And a church that I had no connection to gave me a place to stay in the church. Kind of a pure act of generosity. This is generosity. It's not just giving without expecting anything in return, but to reflect on that with gratitude, to reflect on that act of generosity, kind of cracked my heart open wide. When I started to feel that, I felt I should write a letter, but I didn't even know who to write the letter to. 25 years had passed. I didn't even know the names of the people who helped me. So I felt I had to start giving back and practicing generosity myself and uh, find an organization called Larkin Street Youth Services that I know some of you are very familiar with, been involved in too. And they uh, provide services to homeless and runaway youth. Quite an amazing organization, 80% success record getting kids off the street. And the vast majority, most people don't know this when you see homeless youth, are homeless because it's safer to be on the streets than to be in the home they came from. Uh, I can feel a sense of compassion in, in saying that and recognizing the suffering that's present in the world. And opening my heart to practice generosity in that way is exactly what happened for me and my practice and my life. To begin to open my heart to see the suffering of others Seeing the suffering of others provided a gateway to see my own suffering, to be able to hold it all with compassion. And it became like a calling to realize an even deeper happiness, a deeper peace, for the heart to be fully freed from all confusion. So one of the things that brought me into the practice of meditation With gratitude, when we feel that gratitude, when we feel gratitude, there's a kind of a sense of subtleness and, and that, that enoughness. I love that word enoughness. It says, I don't need, I don't need to attach my happiness to getting something more, or having things exactly the way I need them to be. I can be grateful for what I have right now so I can be more fully present just like we're calling upon you to do, to be fully present for your experience with an attitude of acceptance, to accept it just as it is, to not need it to be different, whether there's body discomfort or discomfort in the mind, to be fully present for it just as it is. So, and of course, gratitude as I said, opens to generosity. 
from His Holiness the Dalai Lama, generosity is the most natural outward expression of an inner attitude of compassion and loving kindness. So I'll share a story, um, another story involving a homeless, uh, involving a homeless person living in living in the big cities. In so many cities now, homelessness is such a part of our lives. But um, it can be a challenge to open our hearts with compassion when we see it so much. I had just returned from a metta retreat, my first metta retreat in this story, in uh, 19 years ago. I think James was one of the teachers on that metta retreat. And I'd fallen in love on that retreat. I fell in love with everybody in the hall. And I came back to San Francisco and uh, the forces of greed, aversion, delusion were greatly subsided. I could really be present. When those qualities are not present, the beautiful qualities, you could say, of our own hearts, beautiful qualities of awareness itself come forward. Compassion, generosity, loving kindness, joy. So I live in San Francisco, half block from Market Street. And um, for those of you who don't know San Francisco, Market Street is one of the main thoroughfares. And for about a three-mile stretch, it's one of the primary congregating uh, places for the homeless. So I'm very close to that every day. So I turned the corner from my house and there was a person who looked homeless without a shirt on. And suddenly what emerged from my mouth, because it just emerged, there was no thinking, was, oh, you look cold, you look cold. here, take my jacket. And the amazing thing was, it wasn't me. There was no me in that equation because there was no thinking. It felt like the first truly generous act of my life. And it was an initial very um, powerful insight to see that that generosity didn't come from a thinking process, didn't come from me, but from simply being present. Uh, interesting over this month together for for you to experience, and maybe you're already experiencing this, experiencing this as the hindrances that you'll hear more about tomorrow begin to subside. How in response to the suffering that's being known in your practice, compassion can very naturally arise. The compassion that recognizes this suffering wishes at the end. Holding it was a sense of caring that supports us and allows us to stay with our direct experience, even when there's difficulties. Generosity is defined as giving without expecting anything in return. Kind of an inherent quality of generosity, that giving, underlying that is a sense of caring caring about all beings and connecting in some way with a quality of loving kindness. It recognizes all beings without exception, wants safety, happiness, health, and ease. In my own practice over the years, the practice of generosity or dana, the Pali word for generosity, 
has grown more and more important. And I even kind of look for ways to practice generosity on retreat because I recognize its great importance. Words from the Buddha. If beings knew as I know the results of the value of giving and sharing, they would not eat without having given. So it becomes a richer and richer practice for me and that the primary practice of generosity is a, is a deeper level for mindfulness practitioners especially is to watch for the impulse. Watch for the impulse to give and have an underlying deep intention to act on that impulse. And to acknowledge as many, many forms of generosity I like to think our being on retreat here in itself as a great act of generosity to the world and what we we bring to the world by practicing in this way. For Mother Teresa, it's not about how much we do, but about the love we put into the doing. And it's not about how much we give, but but about how much love we put into the giving. Real purity to the intention. So watching for the impulse. If we watch for the impulse, sometimes we can see what blocks the heart and mind, these underlying forces that are blocking the clarity, you could say the radiance of our own hearts. Ajahn Chah, some people are afraid of their generosity. They fear they will be taken advantage of or oppressed. In cultivating our generosity, we are only oppressing our greed and attachment. This allows our true nature to come out and become lighter and freer. So a story about this, just a little story. I was on a three-month retreat at the Insight Meditation Society and bringing in the practice of generosity, just watching for the impulse not actively trying to make something happen, but if an impulse arose, the intention to act on it. So at Insight Meditation Society, there's a very quiet road where practitioners uh, can go on walks without much traffic, not, not like the road out here, not like Sir Francis Drake. So. Uh, but a quiet road, and as I was walking, I spotted a tissue, probably from a yogi, because it's pretty much only practitioners walking around there. Must be a little strange for people who live around there to see these people, the walking dead, walking on the roads, super slow speeds. But there was a tissue, and uh, I felt the impulse, but I walked two steps right by that tissue. I was mindful, present. I did a little tracing back. Okay, I stopped. What happened? There was the impulse, and then there was the thought tissue, unpleasant picking up a tissue, (laughs) carrying it all the way back, not being able to put my hand in my pocket in the cold weather, unpleasant, needing to wash my hands as soon as I got back, unpleasant. (laughs) So what was at work? What was at work was the unpleasant, aversion, force of aversion. I traced it back and then I, in that case, I could act on the impulse anyway. I didn't get sick, I washed my hands, no problem. (laughs) So, 
Another powerful story of this is uh, my partner, my husband's mother, is just one of those people who naturally has a radiant quality of loving kindness and great compassion and a very happy person. And uh, I know this very clearly, even though she doesn't speak a word of English and I speak maybe 10 words of Spanish, but I can feel that love and compassion in her presence. She recently visited uh, San Francisco and every time we saw homeless people, she would speak on the compassion she felt. She would express what she was feeling. At about uh, 12, 14 years ago, um, she started uh, feeding homeless. She lives very simply with her husband. They don't have a lot, they have enough, but not a lot, not a lot at all. And uh, she decided to feed the homeless. So she cooks, she started cooking five or six, first five or six people, mostly undocumented immigrants. And it grew, more people came, 20, 25 people, other people started helping her cooking this one meal a week. And um, she asked my partner and I to pay for building an arbor. So the folks as they were eating their lunch would have some shade from the heat and the hot sun in the Central Valley. I already had this practice, I immediately said yes, of course. And then the force of greed and aversion came in. So my partner designed the arbor, we got an estimate for the costs. Whoa, <laughs> this was expensive. This was a lot more than I would have counted on. And I could feel that force of greed, the attachment that was blocking the generosity, the, the, the very thing that Ajahn Chah was speaking to. But I continued. I. I had that commitment, I acted on it, I don't regret it, because now I can tell that story without any shame. <laughs> so, so this is a key element of our, of our practice here, is to turn toward what is present, even when the force of greed or aversion is present, to turn toward it with kindness, with curiosity, letting the Dharma do the work. It's, it's kind of, this is part of what's going against the stream rather than turning away from it, rather than trying to escape it, being present with it, knowing that this leads in the direction of a greater happiness, leads in the direction of a happiness that's not dependent on the material conditions of the world not dependent on health, their finances, their relationships. It's the underlying force of greed that wants or needs things to be the way we like them to be. The greed, the force of greed that where we might experience is wanting a peaceful sit or wanting no body discomfort, kind of attaching to things needing to be a particular way the aversion, you know, the aversion to the unpleasant, maybe to difficult emotions, the unpleasant that's experienced with sounds, the sensations, what's not wanted. Attaching our fundamental happiness to getting what we want or getting rid of what we don't want 
inevitably leads to suffering, this reactivity in the mind. So our call is to accept whatever is present in our practice here. Kind, caring, you could say loving awareness. A sense of interest, curiosity. What is this experience like now? I love this quote from the verses of the faith mind that I, that I think captured it, captures it. The great way is not difficult for those not attached to preferences. Key element of our practice. And in that referring back to that quote from Ajahn Chah, it's letting go of the attachments letting go of the needing, the wanting. This is what allows our true nature to come out and become lighter and freer. So we begin with our practice to be able to be present with this heart of kindness and caring and curiosity for all of our experiences. So another element of generosity I want to speak to is uh, not expecting anything in return. And uh, it took me a while to kind of uh, understand this better. And it came as a result of uh, generosity that I would practice uh, my job at the San Francisco airport where I worked for 35 years. And uh, a lot of renunciants seemingly passed through that airport. And uh, I usually would spend about an hour every day walking around the airport. So I got a chance to see a lot of lot of people. And uh, one time I saw a Tibetan uh, monastic, looked like he might be a Rinpoche, and indeed he was a, a Rinpoche. And he looked lost, just like trying to fi- find his way around, so I stopped and asked him if I could help him. This is a simple act of generosity. And uh, immediately it was clear he didn't speak English, and we used a Tibetan English translation app trying to communicate but I had his boarding pass. He handed my boarding pass, uh, his, his boarding pass to me, uh, and I carried it all the way to the gate. We walked three quarters of a mile from one terminal to another to his gate and managed to have a very beautiful exchange, very heartfelt exchange. Uh, he gave me the honor of allowing him, allowing me to, to buy a meal for him, uh, recognizing the great value to practitioners of offering dana to monastics. And at the end of that interchange, he smiled and gave me a great big bear hug. <laughs> Very sweet. And he handed me his card, invited me to visit his uh, monastery. He also headed a uh, university and a hospital. So and I can't remember, I couldn't, couldn't recall tonight as, as I was trying to recall his name, but I couldn't recall it. But just a few weeks after that, I saw another monastic standing at a cash register. Of course, monastics, monks and nuns, renounce everything except food, food, shelter, clothing, and medicine. It's quite inspiring in their path toward freedom and liberation. Their, Their level of renunciation, quite inspiring. And uh, part of their practice is to give up handling money. 
I know there's exception made perhaps for monks and nuns traveling in the U.S. because uh, people generally don't know that, that uh, monks and nuns rely on generosity to get their food at airports. Uh, so I uh, stepped in front of this monk who was at the cash register ready to pay and I bowed, paid for the monk's meal and I could have been invisible. In the monk never looked at me. I walked away, I looked back, wanting to get something, nothing. <laughs> and then a, vet, a friend very kindly, patiently told me, that's the way it is, that's the way it is. That's the way in the monastic tradition, generosity is most deeply honored. Monks and nuns with their begging bowls in Asia when they receive an offering of food, there's no acknowledgement because it most deeply honors the generosity given without expecting anything in return. So, we really open our hearts to also appreciate, appreciate the generosity of others. The Buddha also placed great emphasis on this a story from the forest refuge. I think it was my first retreat at the forest refuge, this beautiful self-retreat center in Massachusetts. Pretty ideal conditions. One long building with a dining hall, all the rooms, meditation hall, and one long building. So in the cold weather, no need to go outside. Cork floors, so super quiet. Everybody asked to wear slippers to support the quiet. So I'd been sitting for about two weeks and then a new practitioner came in and his slippers seemed to be wooden shoes. <laughs> I could hear this practitioner's shoes from 80 feet down the hall. Clop, clop, clop. Unpleasant. <laughs> it's like clinging the tech hall. It's like, what is he thinking? I can't practice this way. So I fell into a reactivity, suffering. He was my difficult yogi. And then one day I was sitting in the dining hall and practicing the Satipatthana Sutta, mindful internally, mindful externally, seeing the yogi, that particular yogi with his wooden <laughs> I swear there were wooden shoes. Uh, <laughs> he saw a sign asking for um, a volunteer to sign up for dishwashing duty for one extra shift. And immediately he saw it, he picked up the pen and he signed up. Everything changed in that moment. I saw his heart. I saw the purity of his heart that spontaneous act of generosity. So later that afternoon, clop, 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 pleasant, sweet. <laughs> <laughs> later on becoming neutral, sometimes unpleasant, sometimes pleasant, sometimes neutral, but no more reactivity. Kind of this, the fundamental peace not disturbed by the hearing that was being known. 
The shoes, not the problem. Him, not the problem. The reactivity in the mind. I had a friend uh, just passed away about a year ago. He's only 50 years old. His life, life can be so short, so unpredictable. Our life, our life is so precious. We really become aware of how precious our life is in the Dharma. I've just met him about five or six years ago, and um, he and his partner had about eight or ten of us to dinner and just was getting to know him. And uh, they just had returned from Malaysia. They spend most of their time in Malaysia and spend time in San Francisco. And uh, at the end of the dinner, he offered these chocolates he had purchased at the Tokyo airport on his way back from Malaysia, uh, Royce chocolates. And I really like great chocolates, not, not Hershey's chocolates, the best, the best chocolates. So these were fantastic. And I told him how much I loved them and he immediately said, oh, I bought a second box, take it home with you. And I didn't argue with that because I wanted to honor that <laughs> generosity. I wanted it too, okay. <laughs> but truly, I, I could feel that habitual pattern of wanting to say, no, no, you're too generous. But that wouldn't have been honoring the generosity. So I accepted it and I enjoyed it. <laughs> But I sent him an email the next day to say how much I appreciated that pure act of generosity, how I could see something beautiful in his heart, how much I appreciated getting to know him in that short time. And we began this beautiful interchange every time he visited Buddhist sites in Asia. He'd send me photos, um, send me different things, reflections. Uh, So this beautiful friendship that uh, developed So I like to reflect too that the whole of the Dharma has been carried forward by generosity. Our being here right now results from the generosity. For the first 250 years after the time of the Buddha, 250 years after the time of the Buddha died, the teachings were carried forward by renunciants who memorized all of the Buddha's talks, repeating them every day, probably multiple times, carried forward from generation to generation until there was a written word. Quite amazing. And think of all the ways that generosity supported monks and nuns, monasteries, dharma centers, to carry forward the teachings that we're practicing here with today. So I like to think that when I offer generosity to support the dharma, I'm in that lineage, carrying forward the the preciousness of these teachings. So, quote from the Buddha on generosity. Generosity brings happiness at every stage of its expression. We experience joy in forming the intention to be generous. We experience joy in the actual act of giving something and we experience joy in remembering the fact that we have given. So we can really take the time when we're fully present, when we can catch it mindfully, can catch that impulse. See if you experience the joy, the joy in the action, maybe of picking up a tissue someone accidentally dropped in the path. 
the joy you you feel on the reflection afterwards. And there are opportunities for generosity, practice of generosity to uh, be practiced right here on the retreat, just in the integrity, integrity we have with our yogi jobs or quietly opening, closing doors in the dormitories. Just last month, uh, J.D. and I were teaching on a retreat, LGBTQI retreat, and uh, there was a reflection on that retreat. It was 20, kind of a marker, 25 years after the AIDS crisis had really come under control. And uh, a lot of uh, gay men were appreciating the generosity of many others. We especially were recognizing uh, lesbians in the LGBT community who supported the gay men and were in effect allies. And in feeling the appreciation for that, gen- that generosity, the gratitude for that, it really inspires me to be an ally for others. And uh, JD and I had a conversation about this right after, right after that reflection on the retreat, to be especially an ally um, for people of color, to really do the work to understand the pain of our nation's history, to open the heart to, to see what, it like, what it's like in another's experience, to see where there's implicit biases or uh, those factors that block the heart and mind from clearly seeing, from clearly connecting, from seeing where we're so completely all interconnected and to uh, support waking up beyond the binary uh, that we're all working on. You can see that right up front, we're all working on that here, here together with JD's support. So a little bit about uh, sila. Sila is traditionally defined as morality, but in many of the early commentaries, it, uh, a description of harmony is used. And I, I personally prefer this sense of harmony maybe in part because of the way in the West we associate morality with a set of edicts or rules. That's not really the, the way sila is understood. It's an inner harmony, and a kind of an aligning. There's a harmony of aligning in the heart, aligning with the way things are, aligning our intentions and our actions and our practice to be in harmony with the way things are, in harmony with the law of karma. The law of karma uh, that recognizes that we are the owners of our actions. That for whatever we do, for good or for bad, we shall be the heirs. Every action has a consequence without exception. This is the law of karma. There's no accepting, escaping the law of karma. Whatever we do for good or for bad, we shall be the heirs. So it becomes a practice of refining more and more deeply our practice of sila, including right here on this retreat. 
we also recognize, begin to recognize with the understanding of the law of karma, with the understanding of the way things are, that the present moment can't be any different than it is. Truly, the present moment can't be any different than it is. As we begin begin to understand this, to realize it directly, it deeply supports a much greater acceptance of our experience on this retreat. To be whole, to be able to be present with it with a heart of loving awareness, with a sense of interest, curiosity. So, Bhikkhu Bodhi uh, observes that sila establishes the ground, the foundation for the purification of the mind. Sila is really supporting the purification of the mind. And it serves as a source of protection. It's the, the taking of the precepts together serves as a protection for ourselves and for the retreat and other retreatants overall. And it supports the happiness as well, just as generosity and gratitude support happiness. Sila supports the bliss of blamelessness, the happiness that comes when we're with our practice in a way that's non-harming. So, from the Dhammapada, to abstain from evil, to cultivate the good, and to purify one's mind. This is the teaching of the Buddha. So we refrain from harming living beings. We refrain from taking what has not been offered. We refrain from acting out our sexual energy. We refrain from false speech, and we abstain from using substances that cloud the heart and mind. And the last line, we can miss the importance and significance of the last line. May my conduct conduce to the attainment of the highest fruits of liberation. May my conduct conduce to the attainment of the highest fruits of liberation. This recognizes that sila is not just for the benefit of the bliss of blamelessness, not just for the sense of harmony in our hearts and for the harmony in society, but for the benefit of realizing the greatest happiness, for the benefit of realizing the highest fruits of liberation. Ultimately, the greatest importance of the practice of sila is for this higher attainment, freeing our hearts from confusion. From Joseph Goldstein again, it is impossible to separate meditative wisdom from the moral understanding that makes it possible. And with our practice with the five precepts, the positive qualities come forward too. It's not just the non-harming, but very naturally positive qualities come forward. From non-harming, kindness and compassion, basic Uh, care and concern for others' well-being, 
and for our own well-being. It's been powerful in my practice and my relationship to bugs and non-harming with bugs. I had one experience on a retreat, a self-retreat, where I just had a little cottage, a little hut really. It was very hot weather and the spiders were out. And I saw what I thought was a black widow on my leg and uh, it had bitten me. And uh, I swatted it, killed the spider. And uh, it so rattled my practice. I did get some swelling, a pretty big circle, but I didn't need to go to the hospital. I was okay. But uh, just see the fact that I had not honored the precept. I felt like it took me out of the practice for about a day and a half. So I was really still with the practice because I was seeing the impact of not following that precept. And it really strengthened my commitment, the deeper commitment to follow the precepts and to really uh, adhere uh, to the precepts. Knowing still mistakes can be made, but strengthening my commitment. And uh, knowing that the non-harming, the harming we cause, like walking down the path, we're going to step on bugs we don't even see. That, that's not, that doesn't have a karmic effect in uh, the teachings from the Buddha. So now I'm very careful. Just just tonight, in the last half hour before I came up to give this talk, I relocated three bugs from my room down the hill. Keep a plastic cup just for that purpose. And uh, you know, it's so clear when I put that plastic cup and the bug starts to run around and the bug is afraid, so clear that every being, every creature wants safety, happiness, health, and ease without exception. So, from that precept of not taking that which is not offered, generosity, honesty, contentment, sense of contentment come forward. From not acting out of our sexual energy, not putting forth such sexual energy, there's a subtleness, a clarity, a calm, And very naturally, the quality of loving kindness, the love that is not attached, the love that is unconditional, comes forward. Not speaking harsh words or false speech promotes a sense of peace, results in promoting peace of harmony through speech. And we can even practice this for those of us who have yogi jobs or interacting with others. Maybe it's very little, maybe only a few words need to be spoken, but it's a great opportunity to practice with this precept, to really be present, to observe. Is there a force of greed, aversion, delusion that's underlying the words about to be spoken? Are the words that are about to be spoken from a place of loving kindness, of renunciation, of compassion? Not taking substances that cloud the heart and mind supports the clarity, the natural clarity of the heart. So, so a few final words. Gratitude, 
brings forth happiness, ease, contentment, supports a sense of enoughness, supports the renunciation of those forces of greed, aversion, delusion that cloud the heart and mind, that prevent the clear seeing and knowing of the way things are, that prevent our hearts from being fully open in the world in the way in which we want to be present in the world with love. Generosity and and gratitude will naturally arise out of our practice, naturally arising factors. Sila supports this bliss of blamelessness and supports us on the path toward realizing a deeper kind of freedom and happiness. Conducive for the attainment of the highest fruit of liberation. So final words from the Buddha. Mind is a forerunner of all things. Speak or act with an impure mind. Suffering follows as a wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. Mind is a forerunner of all things. Speaker act with a peaceful mind. Happiness follows like a shadow that never leaves. So, let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.